0: Uh, I don't know if any of you have read this book, but a guy named Robert Putman, uh, he wrote a book called Bowling Alone, uh, and uh, in his American context, uh, he says that in the last 30 years, uh, there's been a 30% decrease in families uh, eating together. That's that's quite dramatic in 30 years. Uh, The average family now eats together uh, three uh, dinners a week. Uh, usually, dinner lasts for about 20 minutes, and if they are having dinner together, it's in front of the telly, right? That's uh, where that's where we're at. In that same 30-year period, uh, there's also been a 45% decrease in people entertaining friends in their own home. Uh, so, you, you might meet your friend for a coffee. Uh, you might even go out for dinner f- uh, with them, but it's rare for you to invite them over to your home and actually uh, share dinner with them in your home. Uh, this is all part of what Robert Partman calls uh, the collapse of community. Uh, the collapse of community, of family, of real hospitality. Uh, So why is that important? Uh, Well, it's important because as a church, we're really thankful that our church has grown over the last five years. It's been a wonderful thing. It's great to hear stories uh, like we've heard today from Vicky and Grace. Uh, But one of the challenges of having a church that's growing in numbers, I guess, uh, is that individuals can start to feel like they're slipping through the cracks, that they're less connected with, less cared for perhaps, are less considered. So this sense of community can drop away. So as a church, we recognise that if we want to keep growing bigger, which we do because we think it's a great thing for people to come to know Jesus and become a part of his church, right? but if we want to keep growing bigger, uh, there's a sense in which we also have to grow smaller. So that every individual in our church, no matter how big our church gets, uh, no matter what their age, their gender, their education, their work, their health, their personality, every individual feels that they're genuinely connected with and cared for and considered. And one of the ways we hope to see that happen is by encouraging us all to think a bit more intentionally about how we do meals. Uh, to think perhaps even radically counterculturally about how we do meals. Uh, in his book uh, Meals with Jesus, uh, a guy named Tim Chester he points out that there are three uh, ways in which the New Testament finishes the sentence, uh, the Son of Man came. Right, so, the three ways in Mark ten forty-five, it says, uh, Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to serve, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the first one. The second one's in Luke 19, verse 10, uh, where it says, Jesus came, the Son of Man came. Uh, to seek and to save the lost. And the third time is in Luke seven verse thirty four, where it says Jesus, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's funny, isn't it? Right, Chester points out that the the first two are to do with why Jesus came. He came to serve, to to give his life as a ransom. But the third verse tells us how Jesus came. Jesus came eating and drinking. So what does that mean? It means that if we want to learn about Jesus, if we want to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus, we have to look at his meals. We have to look very closely at his meals because he came eating and drinking. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at six meals in Luke's Gospel. Looking at who Jesus ate with, what he ate, how he ate, who he invited, what he said at the meals, everything about Jesus' meals. We can learn a stack about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him as we look at these meals. Uh, so today, we want to look at this first meal in Luke chapter 5, and it really is about God's powerful and transforming grace. That's what we're reflecting on today. Uh, one of the hard things, of course, of, of diving into a passage like this is we've got no idea of what the context is, do we? It's kind of like watching a two-minute scene out of a two-hour movie. Uh, you could, I could take it wherever I like, and you'd have no idea. No, I'm joking. Uh, so... Uh, So what we're going to do is, uh, let me give you a little bit of context, at least of the the passages around it. So if you read later on uh, Luke chapters 4 and 5, uh, what we've got here is a whole series of stories uh, that are displaying Jesus' power as God's king. That's what Luke's trying to do in this section. Uh, So in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, uh, we see Jesus' power over all other powers, even evil powers. I so saw a whole bunch of people come to Jesus, uh, and he frees them from evil spirits. Then, uh, chapter 4, verses 38 to 44, uh, we see Jesus has power over sickness. Right? It's, it's amazing. He, he heals various diseases. Then, in the first part of chapter 5, there's a story about Jesus' first disciples following him, Peter, James, and John. We'll, we'll come back to them in a bit. Then, in, in verses uh, 12 to 16 of chapter 5, another example of Jesus healing, this time uh, a man with leprosy. And finally, verses 17 to 26, just before the passage we're looking at today, uh, Jesus displays his power over sin. He makes this incredible claim that he has the authority to forgive all sins. All sins have been committed against me, and I have the authority to forgive sins, Jesus says. Incredible claim. So that's the context for today's passage, and that's where this story fits in. Why do we have this story about Levi, a notorious sinner? Well, it's because Jesus has just said that he has the authority to forgive sins. So I want us to see five things in this passage. You can see them in the outline if you open it up. First, that Jesus welcomes sinners. Second, that sinners welcome Jesus. Uh, Third, that Jesus eats with sinners. Fourth, Jesus' followers eat with sinners. And fifth, that saints oppose Jesus. So if you've got the passage, the passage is printed on the inside, you might want to look at the verses. So I'm going to refer to specific verses. They're, they're kind of basically the sentences. They're divided up the Bible. So verse 27, sentence 27, uh, we see in this verse that Jesus welcomes sinners. Have a look there. Jesus, uh, Luke says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Uh, one of the themes, I, uh, themes that I really love in the Gospels is that people who have been rejected by basically everyone else are welcomed by Jesus. I just mentioned the man with leprosy earlier in this chapter. I know, a man the Jewish people considered to be unclean, uh, to be avoided. Uh, a man they wouldn't be seen dead with. Yet Jesus reaches out and touches him. Rejected by everyone else, yet welcomed by Jesus. Uh, back in chapter 4, we, we heard of those people with uh, possessed by evil spirits, unclean spirits. The Jews avoided them like the plague, and yet Jesus frees them. He has compassion on them. And Levi is no different. Levi knows exactly what it's like to be rejected. Uh, Levi is a Jew, uh, so in that sense maybe he's not so much on the outside, but in the eyes of his own people, the Jews, he's even worse than someone with leprosy or or, or someone who's possessed by demons because he is a tax collector. You see that there? A tax collector. That's completely unacceptable. Uh, For three main reasons. First, it's politically unacceptable uh, because Jewish tax collectors like Levi uh, had formed an alliance with the Romans, you see, the Romans who are occupying the promised land of the Jewish people, and so they were collecting uh, taxes on behalf of the Romans. They were in bed with the enemy. right? And so that didn't make them that popular, you can imagine. Uh, they collected three main taxes. Uh, the first uh, was called the ground tax. Right, so, uh, they, uh, people had to pay, uh, to give the Romans 10% of any grain that the ground produced, uh, 20% of any fruit that the ground produced. A second, they had to collect an income tax. A Third, they had to collect what was called the poll tax. Uh, this was one that the, the Jews particularly hated because the Romans used this tax in particular to fund their army. Uh, it was also hated because every individual Jew had to pay this tax, which spoke to the Jews of the fact that the Romans thought, we don't just own the land, we own every single one of you. Uh, and the Jews hated that. They hated it because they uh, understood that the land uh, belonged to them and to their God. Uh, so tax collectors like Levi were despised. Right, they were collecting taxes, uh, that the Roman, these three taxes that the Romans required, but they were also collecting extra taxes because they wanted to make a profit, to, to line their own pockets. Uh, so what they'd do, they had a little kind of portable little pop-up tax booth uh, and they'd set up their tax booth by the road and, and they'd almost invent taxes on the spot. You know, I'm going to tax you to go down this particular road, to cross that bridge, uh, to kind of travel with that, uh, transport goods with that kind of animal, uh, to dock your boat in that harbour, to, to go into that city. Right, they, they had all these extra taxes and most of them were to do with transporting goods, which means it's no accident. Where's Levi? He's by the road. Jesus sees him by the road, uh, he's set up his little pop up tax booth to rip off his own people for another day, and Jesus says to him, Follow me. Politically, Levi's a traitor. Uh, he's also considered to be spiritually unacceptable. The Jews had this whole system of people being clean and unclean, fit to be in God's presence, not fit to be in God's presence. Uh, Levi was considered to be unclean. In fact, Jewish law in the first century uh, banned tax collectors from being anywhere near the synagogue. Uh, They were considered uh, to have... uh, The language used would have been that they had prostituted themselves to the Roman Empire. They kind of united themselves intimately with the pagans, the heathen, the great unwashed. You know, that's the kind of idea. Unclean. So being politically and spiritually unclean, uh, tax collectors were also socially just completely unacceptable. A devout Jew would, uh, would never travel with a tax collector. Uh, they, they weren't allowed to do business with a tax collector. Uh, they weren't allowed uh, to even really speak to a tax collector, let alone sit down and have a meal with a tax collector. Tax collectors were to be excluded, uh, to be avoided, to be shunned. So here's Levi, he knows what it's like to be rejected. His own people have considered him to be completely unacceptable. They despise him. So that's the beauty of this story, right? Levi, who's rejected, who's in a sense dug his own grave, right? Because of his own greed and betrayal, he's found himself completely isolated. Rejected by basically everyone, yet Jesus welcomes him. Jesus welcomes him. He sees him by the road and says, follow me. And so I guess I wonder, perhaps you're not in a dissimilar place to Levi today. Maybe you're familiar with rejection, with sorrow. Maybe you know what it's like to be rejected. Uh, If that's you, I want you to be encouraged by this story. The encouragement here is that the one who really matters, right? Jesus uh, Jesus himself, God in human form, uh, he will welcome you. No matter who you are or what you've done, that's the encouragement of this story. It's Jesus' incredible grace really to embrace and accept and, and welcome people that everyone else rejects. Uh, Jesus welcomes sinners, people who are broken, people who aren't perfect, people who are messed up. And in verse 28 uh, uh, he calls sorry see uh, here um, Jesus calls Levi to follow him, and that's what Levi does, isn't it in verse 28? Levi welcomes Jesus, as it were. He follows him. He invites Jesus into his life. Levi gets up, leaves everything, Luke says in verse 28, and follows Jesus. It's just like Peter, James, and John in those first 11 verses of this chapter. right the Levi leaves everything. He leaves his position. I mean, sure, he's not in a good place, right? But at least he had a position. He had some status. He had some income. Right, but he leaves all that behind to follow Jesus. All his alliances with the Roman Empire leaves it all behind to follow Jesus. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? You might be thinking that about, about that about Vicky and grace. Why would they follow Jesus? Are they crazy? Well, no. They're like Levi, blown away by Jesus' grace. Blown away that Jesus would accept someone like them. After everything they've done, after everything he's done, Levi understands that. He, he, he's not experienced this kind of grace before. And so he follows Jesus. And there's a couple of things we can learn about what it looks like to follow Jesus, to trust in him from this passage. The first is uh, that Levi actually gets up and follows Jesus. Right? Following Jesus is always an active thing. But I've got a friend uh, who uh, used to do a whole lot of rock climbing. He had all sorts of different ropes. Uh, we went climbing a few times. Uh, and, uh, but let me ask you, uh, how would you know if my friend had really had faith in his climbing ropes? It wouldn't be because uh, he could describe the ropes really well. Would it? it wouldn't be because he knew lots about the ropes. It wouldn't be because he'd seen lots of other people use the ropes. No, you'd know he had faith in the ropes. If he was actually willing to go over the edge of the cliff on the rope, right? That's what faith is. It, it's real dependence. It's putting your life in, something hands, that, in something's hand. That is real faith. And that's the kind of faith that Levi has in Jesus, Right, it's not just uh, that he can describe Jesus. It's not that he knows stuff about Jesus. It's not that he knows other people who follow Jesus. Right, he actually gets up and follows Jesus for himself. That's what faith is. It's always That's what faith always is in the Gospels. It has to be expressed actively. Which leads to the second thing, which is that Levi leaves everything to follow Jesus. I said before, back in verses 1 to 11, the same thing happened with Peter, James and John. Uh, Luke's clear back in that story that Peter, James and John are fishermen. Right? And he's also clear that their dad, or James and John's dad, Zebedee, he's a fisherman. Probably their dad's dads were fishermen. Like fishing was in their blood. It was all they knew. It was, it was a part of their identity. Yet look, if you've got a, a Bible open in verse 10, uh, Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And straight away, these men leave their boats, they leave their nets, they live the only life they've ever known to follow Jesus. They leave everything. Because following Jesus uh, means giving him exclusive loyalty. Number one priority. Uh, in Luke 9, verse 23, just a couple of chapters after this, Jesus says, uh, "'Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily.'" and follow me. Uh, take up their cross. You know, we sometimes have, uh, people sometimes wear crosses these days. Uh, it's kind sort of an item of jewellery. It looks nice. Uh, and um, Or, you know, sometimes people, are, oh, it's my cross to bear. You know, they're having a hard time. And uh, people are, maybe are really having a hard time. I'm not trying to minimise that. But in this day and age, uh, people would not wear a cross. It so would be kind of like wearing an electric chair around your neck or a lethal injection thing. Like, the cross in this day and age is a symbol of execution. The only time anyone picked up a cross was when their life was over. They'd been given the death sentence. No one wanted to pick up a cross. And yet this is Jesus' great big discipleship pitch. Right, Here you go. Pick up your cross and follow me. What's he saying? He's saying, when you follow me, you have to give me your exclusive loyalty. You have to leave stuff behind, leave an old life behind. It's like that life, spiritually speaking, dies with Christ on the cross. And so that you're raised to live a new life uh, with him. And so that's what Levi does. He leaves his old life behind. His life of greed and betrayal and treachery. Levi expresses his faith actively. He gives Jesus his exclusive loyalty. He welcomes Jesus into his life. Jesus welcomes sinners. Sinners welcome Jesus. And Jesus eats with sinners. Verse 29. Uh, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. Uh, back in the Old Testament, that's the, the first part of the Bible, uh, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. Uh, God promised that when his king came, there would be heaps of banquets and feasts and parties. But he said, you can look it up, Isaiah 25 verse 6, you can look it up later if you like. Uh, but God said, I'm going to prepare a feast of rich food with the best of meats and the finest of wines. A feast that will be on offer for all peoples, God said. So the Jews who knew their Old Testament uh, were expecting that when God's king came, that there'd be a whole lot of feasts. They had no problem uh, problem with that. Uh, What they did have a problem with uh, was who was attending this feast. Right? That, because Isaiah said that these parties, these feasts, uh, they would be for all people. So right? Not just the Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. Uh, but in the midst of the, the Gentile Romans kind of taking over their land, uh, the Jews had kind of forgotten about that bit of all peoples. Uh, they thought it was just for them. Uh, so they would never, ever have had a meal with a Gentile. Certainly not a bunch of tax collectors like this. Uh, so about here, Jesus, God's king. Is having a party with tax collectors, right? The enemies of God's people, really, but It's scandalous to them. Now, to understand it, we've got to understand how important meals were in this culture. Uh, one one guy says uh, it would be hard to overestimate the importance of table fellowship in this culture. Meal times were far more than occasions for consuming food. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food uh, with someone else uh, had become a ceremony, he says, ritually symbolizing friendship and intimacy and unity. Right, so, in having a meal with these people, uh, Jesus is offering them uh, not just to, to follow him at a distance. This is Levi, you know, people like him who are weak and sinful and broken. He's saying, don't just follow me at a distance. Don't just be one of my groupies. But I'm going to sit down and share a meal with you. I'm offering you friendship and intimacy and love and acceptance and embrace. It's incredible grace of Jesus. Of Jesus to actually eat this meal with people that everyone else rejects, with sinners. So people are like Levi, who've understood Jesus' amazing grace, his true followers, uh, also reach out to and eat with sinners. You see it there. Luke says, And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And how did these tax collectors and others, kind of scandalous people get to the party? They got there because Levi invited them. He said, come along. This guy Jesus, he's welcomed me, he's embraced me, he's shown me incredible grace and I want you to know about that too. So come to this party and meet Jesus. But look at the end of the passage, verses 30 to 32. Because they're the the Jewish religious leaders, right? These are the people who consider themselves to be saints. Not in the technical sense of the the Catholic Church, but saints in the sense that they think that, spiritually speaking, they're perfectly fine. They're good, they're pure, they're they're healthy. Uh, And what we see here is that those kind of people don't welcome Jesus. They oppose Jesus. Verse 30, they ask Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You can hear the tone in their voice, can't you? Why do you eat with this scum? Aren't you better than them? You ought to be sneering at them, looking down your nose at them. Not welking them to a meal, you see. They think if Jesus and his disciples eat with the tax collectors and sinners, they must be endorsing their lifestyle. Maybe even participating in it. But look in verse 31, right? Jesus doesn't see it that way. Jesus says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Uh, You know, you know uh, that if you're sick today, it's your job to get to the doctor. That's how it works. You call up, you make the appointment, you go and see the doctor. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't that way around. Uh, Sick people didn't go to doctors. Doctors went to sick people, uh, which I think is a tremendous arrangement. But anyway, uh, that's how it worked. And so Jesus is saying that's what he's doing spiritually. He's saying if he wants to actually offer healing to people, spiritually speaking, he has to go to the people who know and accept that there's something wrong with them, that they're spiritually sick. He's saying it's no good. Jesus is saying it's no good me spending all the time with people like you, right? Pharisees, people who are utterly convinced that spiritually speaking you're fine. What am I going to do with you? You're like the average Aussie bloke who won't go to the doctor, right? You're like I'm fine, I don't need a doctor. Well, the doctor can't do much for you. But Jesus says he, he needs to go to the people who know that spiritually speaking they're sick, that they need him. And so in verse 32, Jesus ends the conversation by really driving that home. He says, I haven't come to call the righteous uh, but sinners to repentance. Why He didn't come, he's not saying people who are actually righteous. He's saying, I didn't come to call people who are convinced that they're righteous. who put themselves in the righteous box and and point their finger at all those sinful people over there. And let's face it, there's always someone who's worse than you. So that's really convenient, isn't it? I can do that. So That's why I like reading the papers, because they like labelling people as evil and criminal and all sorts of things. And it gives me an opportunity uh, to get on my moral soapbox and point out that I'm good, at least in comparison to them. Uh, And Jesus says, I don't have much to offer you. Not much to offer those who consider themselves to be righteous, uh, but only to those who are prepared to humbly admit that they're sinners. People like Levi and his friends. Uh, So we see in this passage Jesus' incredible grace, really. Uh, So I think there are two broad ways that we might respond to this. The first is maybe you're here, you're like Levi, uh, and you might want to embrace Jesus' grace. Maybe even for the first time. Uh, To do that, Jesus says uh, in that last verse... I uh, think you have to repent, which means to, to leave things behind, just like Levi did. Uh, like Levi, uh, first, uh, you might need to leave behind your badness. Right? Levi left behind his life of tax collecting, of ripping off his, his family and friends, of greed and corruption. Right? He left all that behind. And when he left that behind, he was welcomed by Jesus, embraced by him. He actually got to eat with Jesus. Uh, but if you notice in this passage... Uh, Notice in this passage, who isn't eating with Jesus? But it's not Levi and his friends who know that they're bad, is it? It's the religious leaders who think that they're good. See, it's their deep conviction that they're good, that they're probably better than most people, that actually keeps them from eating with Jesus. Uh, So to embrace Jesus' grace, you have to turn away, not just from your badness, uh, but from your deep conviction that you're good, that you're pure, that you're 100% perfect even. Or to use the language of this passage, that you're healthy. Uh, That you're much better than sinners like me, right, who who need Jesus. Uh, So that's the first thing. Let me urge you today to embrace Jesus' grace. Repent of both your badness and your goodness. Throw yourself upon his grace. Uh, But many of you today have already done that. You've embraced Jesus' grace. Uh, So I want to encourage you uh, to think about what it might look like to keep being transformed by Jesus' grace, uh, particularly in how you think about your meals. Uh, so uh, we're going to talk a lot about meals over the next bit of time. But let, let's remember, uh, for the most part, all of us have 21 meals a week. right Breakfast, lunch and dinner, seven days a week. Uh, so we're, we're generally having those meals. And so my question is, how can you use your meals uh, to show that, uh, that you're being transformed by Jesus' grace? Uh, first, uh, how can you use your meals to show God's grace to people uh, within our church community? One, one, way that, uh, one thing that you could think about is, I don't think we should just have meals with people who are like us. Well, not people who are the same age or demographic or interests. Right? Don't just share meals with people who are like you. But, and don't just share meals with people who you naturally like. But this passage shows that, that at least some of our meals should cross boundaries should bring people together who wouldn't normally be together. It should show grace to people that others might reject. But that, That's the kind of meals we're talking about. right? We can all hang out with our mates. Right? That's wonderful. There's that a good place for that. But if all our meals are like that, then it doesn't show much transformation of God's grace. Right, so how can we show God's grace, how can you show God's grace uh, with your meals to people within our church community and how can you show God's grace to people uh, through your meals uh, to people who aren't yet in our church community? Because uh, our homes, our church community, uh, shouldn't be a holy huddle where we kind of like batten down the hatches and only hang out with other Christians until Jesus comes back. Right? That's that's not what we're aiming for, right? Well, we've got to be a bit more like Levi. as people who've embraced Jesus' grace, who are being transformed by Jesus' grace, uh, we should open up our homes so that we can uh, eat and drink and share life with other people that they might taste Jesus' grace too as we share a meal with them, as we talk with them, as we welcome them and accept them. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for this story. We thank you that it shows us uh, your incredible grace to us in Jesus' Uh, We thank you that Jesus isn't like so many of us, Uh, that he sees uh, us, he sees people in uh, in their sin and brokenness and mess, and yet he comes towards them and reaches out to them and shows them grace rather than rejecting them. I pray this day that we would be able to embrace his grace, his amazing grace, and that we would keep being transformed by it for his glory. Amen.